Welcome to episode 46, The Truth About Roe v. Wade, part 1, Sick and Twisted. Before we get started, I wanted to ask you to do me a favor and share the show. If you're on Facebook or Twitter and the topics such as abortion, the Federalist Papers, the government shutdown, Julian Assange, gun control, or socialism comes up, please share the topic-specific TruthQuest episode with your debate partner. If you are listening to this on the Apple Podcast app, please take a moment and scroll down on the podcast page and give it a five-star rating. Another way you can help grow the show is to throw a small donation my way at the TruthQuest podcast patronage page. See this episode's show notes page at truthquest.podbean.com. The easiest way to stay up to date on the podcast is to subscribe to it on iTunes or Google Play Music. It's also available on Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, and Podbean. Finally, please join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast. So before you listen to this episode, I have five prerequisite episodes that I strongly, strongly recommend that you listen to. Episode 2, The Truth About Abortion, What About the Baby? Episode 33, The Truth About Abortion, Mental Gymnastics. Episode 3, The Truth About the Constitution. Episode 16, The Truth About the Supreme Court. And episode 37, The Truth About the Bill of Rights. I promise by listening to those five episodes, it will increase your understanding of what is presented here by a factor of 10. So what we're going to do here is I'm going to break up reviewing the Roe v. Wade decision into two episodes. In this one, we're going to look at the decision in general and kind of walk through some of their logic or illogic and look at some of the justifications for having abortions. In the second episode, I'm going to expose you to some things that I think you will think are very surprising about the Roe v. Wade decision. So let's get started. I'm guessing that 100% of you have never read the Roe v. Wade Supreme Court opinion. Neither had I until last week. But this is the truth quest, and the best way to find the truth is to get it yourself. So in this case, I'm going to allow the opinion to speak for itself. Because what I found is much of it is actually strongly pro-life, and we're going to cover a lot of that in the next episode. But you never really hear about that. Neither the liberal media, nor the conservative media for that matter, ever points this out, leading me to believe that no one has read the opinion. You will quickly come to understand how evil and conniving judicial activism really is, and you will more fully understand why the Founding Fathers designed the system the way they did. Instead, we have allowed liberals to beat us over the head for almost 50 years with the Roe v. Wade opinion. You will be blown away by the end of this episode, I promise. So the quick recap of the case for any listeners from outside the United States, which I do have a few, so here we go. From the opinion, a pregnant single woman, Roe, brought a class action challenging constitutionality of the Texas criminal abortion laws, which prescribe procuring or attempting an abortion except on medical advice for the purpose of saving the mother's life. Also involved were two other plaintiffs, a doctor and a childless married couple, both of whom's claims were not considered by the Supreme Court. A lower court found the Texas law void because it was vague and infringed on the Ninth and Fourteenth Amendments. Justice Harry Blackman writes the majority opinion. So let's go through it. He writes, By acknowledging that Texas's laws against abortion are, quote, typical of those that have been in effect in many states for approximately a century, end quote. The first criminal abortion statute in Texas was enacted in 1854. The footnotes on page 118 and 119 of the opinion list the anti-abortion statutes on the books for no fewer than 26 states. So why do you think that is, that there were 26 states that had abortion laws on the books 
at the time of Roe v. Wade. Why do you think that the first criminal abortion statute came almost a century before? Could it be that the proper jurisdiction for things not explicitly enumerated in the Constitution as being in the realm of the federal government stay at the state level? My question to Harry is, have you ever read the Tenth Amendment? He goes on to discuss just how complicated this contentious issue of killing babies is. Yeah, no shit. He mentions population growth, pollution, poverty, and racial overtones, all as reasons a woman may want an abortion. Wow. All of which, of course, translates into taking of a human life. For purposes of pollution? Racial overtones? Really? Wait until I get further into the decision where I lay out other so-called valid reasons to constitutionally kill your baby. He explains that the court's task is to, quote, resolve the issue by constitutional measurement, free of emotion and of predilection, end quote. They have accomplished this by inquiring into, quote, medical and medical legal history and what that history reveals about man's attitudes towards the abortion procedure over the centuries, end quote. If Harry were alive today, I would ask him to please explain to me what any of these things has to do with a constitutional analysis of the law. It seems pretty simple to me. Does the Constitution give the federal government the power to regulate abortions? What about any medical procedure? What about health care? Well, the answer is no. The majority opinion of Roe v. Wade should literally be two or three paragraphs long. Next, we get a summary of Roe's case. She was unmarried and pregnant, could not afford to travel to another jurisdiction to get an abortion. She challenged the Texas statute on the grounds that it was, quote, unconstitutionally vague and abridged her right to personal privacy protected by the First, Fourth, Fifth, Ninth, and Fourteenth Amendments, end quote. This, folks, is what you call casting a broad net, or as some people would say, throwing a bunch of shit at the wall to see what sticks. What activist judges are after is finding a way to justify their policy preferences. In this case, black men wanted to strike down the Texas abortion law. If you don't believe me, do a little research on the man. He had three daughters, and his wife was adamantly pro-abortion. He was enamored by the D.C. and Georgetown social scene, so you can only imagine the pressure he had from his peers. So back to how this thing called judicial activism works. If the attorneys give the activist judges enough ammo to base their decision on, you are likely to get the outcome you wish for, regardless of the legal tenacity of the opinion, which was definitely the case in Roe v. Wade. They accomplished their goal of making the killing of innocent human life a constitutional right. The district court found that Roe's fundamental, quote, right to choose whether to have children is protected by the Ninth Amendment through the Fourteenth Amendment, end quote. This is pure folly. I will circle back on this in a couple minutes. Blackman next runs the reader through the history of abortion from ancient times with the Greek and Romans. He talks about Aristotle, St. Augustine, and English statutory law, which introduced the idea that a baby can be killed if it may involve, quote, injury to the physical or mental health of the pregnant woman or any existing children in her family, greater than if the pregnancy were terminated. Holy shit, folks. I mean, literally, human life has no value. Your mental health and the fact that you already have children are legitimate reasons to kill a baby. Has anyone ever heard about adoption? This is pure evil. 
Some have speculated that the only reason Blackman allocated 31% of his opinion pages on history is to compensate for the lack of legal analysis in the remaining pages. I think after hearing the rest of this episode and the next one, you will likely agree. Blackman concludes his history lesson with a brief discussion of the 18th century common laws that discuss the quickening of the fetus, or the viability argument. He also discusses the soul and when the baby is considered a person. And then he shifts gears to the American laws, where he clearly shows his hand as he demonstrates how states differentiated their restrictions based on the development of the fetus. That's the quickening or unquickened. Until in the 1950s, where the restrictions became very severe and many jurisdictions just banned abortion outright. This walk down memory lane is irrelevant. It is clearly an attempt by an activist black man to demonstrate just how backwards us idiotic, unenlightened, backwood hicks are when compared to all these other enlightened civilizations before us. For the most part, they didn't give two shits about the life of the baby in the womb. I wonder why that is. Could it be something to do with the Judeo-Christian tradition upon which this country was founded? Listen to episode 26, The Truth About the Judeo-Christian Tradition, for a deep dive into this. See, this tradition is unacceptable to liberals like Blackman because it values life and holds you accountable for your actions, like getting pregnant. He wraps up his discussion about American laws with a remarkable quote that literally smacks him in the face with the truth of how this opinion should have been written. Blackman writes, quote, It is thus apparent that at common law, at the time of the adoption of the Constitution, and throughout the major portion of the 19th century, abortion was viewed with less disfavor than under most American statutes currently in effect. Phrasing it another way, a woman enjoyed substantially broader right to terminate a pregnancy than she does in most states today. End quote. There it is, folks. That's the truth. That's the answer. Federalism. If you listen to episode 45 or any of my other Constitution-related episodes, you will be familiar with the Tenth Amendment, which gave all the power not delegated directly to the federal government to the states. That would include the regulation of abortions. The powers granted to the federal government were few and defined. Those left to the states were numerous and indefinite. You remember things like the military and post office, coining money, foreign affairs, foreign trade. All of that was in the federal jurisdiction. Everything else was left to the states. So what if the American people's attitudes about abortion had changed over time? It's a free country. Or it used to be a free country. What's the alternative? A one-size-fits-all proclaimed from on high by five lawyers sitting in fancy chairs wearing black robes? Really? That's how it's going to be? Blackman next discusses the position of the American Medical Association, which took a remarkably anti-abortion position, which makes sense since they are medical professionals and they're trained in human anatomy, and they actually know what an abortion is. It's difficult to sugarcoat abortion with platitudes when they see the end result. This is followed by a review of the American Public Health Association and the American Bar Association. So, as you can, as you can imagine, Blackman puts a lot of weight in the Bar Association's opinion, which essentially says that in the old days, the states had a compelling interest in protecting the life of the mother who might be subjected to a risky medical procedure. But since medical advances have made it so much easier to kill babies in the womb in a manner that is safe for the mother, there really is no compelling state interest. Wow. It's ironic or purposeful that the court will cite scientific advances as reasons re arguing for more abortions, but when pro-lifers bring up medical advances in regards to the baby in the womb, the pro-abortionists can't shut the debate down fast enough. 
Interestingly enough, the Bar Association's rationale takes a quick turn when they shift their attention to what they call prenatal life. On the one hand, they argue that the state has compelling interest to make sure women have an abortion are protected from harm. Quote, the state had a legitimate interest in seeing to it that abortion, like any other medical procedure, is performed under circumstances that ensure maximum safety for the patient. End quote. Very interesting, wouldn't you say? If Roe v. Wade is the gospel according to pro-abortionists, it seems strange why they oppose all attempts to ensure the abortion procedure is safely performed, such as requiring the physician performing the procedure to have admitting rights at nearby hospitals. Nope, there's no compromise by the anti-lifers. Back to the bar's dramatic shift. They argue that, quote, the state's interest and general obligation to protect life then extends to, drumroll please, prenatal life, end quote. Well, what the hell? They explicitly avoid agreeing with the claim that life begins at conception, but, but, quote, as long as at least potential life is involved, the state may assert interest beyond the protection of the pregnant woman alone, end quote. Huh. So potential life is enough to inject state interest. Again, what the hell? That's in Roe v. Wade. How come no one ever quotes that part of the opinion? One of the arguments Blackman makes to avoid evaluating the state's compelling interest in the prenatal life is to point out that most of the state courts called upon to interpret their laws in the 19th and 20th centuries were focused on protecting the woman's health rather than the baby in the womb. This is disingenuous at best. After all, the court is about to make up, out of thin air, a constitutional right to kill babies in the womb, but they are unable to take a minor inference of a state's interest in protecting babies in the womb. That seems like strong evidence of a court looking for a particular outcome. Also, this seems like an easy fix from the state's perspective. Since the statutes do not spell out their interest in protecting prenatal life, how about they just add that language to the statute? Based on Blackman's logic, that should suffice. You think the maniacal pro-abortion lobby would go for that? I doubt it. So we are about halfway through the opinion, and I want to pull up and pose the question that regular listen- listeners will know is coming. What about the baby? The closest thing we've come to discussing the baby's rights is zero, nada. We have discussed quickening, fetuses, embryos, the safety of the mother, but no mention of the life and liberty of the baby, other than this minor discussion about compelling state interests of this prenatal life. Nor is there a rights of the father ever considered. Now, both of these are remarkable omissions in and of themselves, I'll cut the court a little bit of slack because they can easily explain the omission is due to the fact that the unborn or dead aborted babies do not have standing to sue, and there are no fathers that were part of this particular lawsuit. But for a court that fashions itself as the brightest legal minds the country has to offer, how much of a reach in logic is it to recognize their rather blatant omission? Before we move forward, I want to offer an observation. The same people who demand that we take science into consideration when it comes to climate change refuses to take it into account when it comes to human life. Pro-abortionists refuse to take scientific advances into account. Instead, they oppose ultrasounds, counseling, heartbeat laws, brain activity, fetal development, DNA, ability to feel pain, movement inside the womb. None of that matters. They oppose any effort to humanize the baby and change the mind of the mother, or even to allow people to pray for the women as they enter abortion clinics. Instead, we get shit like the state of New York passing a partial birth abortion law and celebrating its passage. Yeah, we can kill babies whenever we want now. We are pro-choice to kill unborn babies. How sick and twisted. 
The next section of the opinion starts out with the following very obvious observation. Quote, the Constitution does not explicitly mention any right of privacy, end quote. So what do activist judges do when they can't find their way to their desired result in the actual law? They make it up. So in, in a series of cases, the court found some form of privacy rights in personal behavior. It was death by a million bad precedents. The most often cited case about privacy is Griswold v. Connecticut, 1965, a case regarding the restrictions to use contraceptives. Of course, there is no right to privacy in the Constitution, so the court had to make it up. How do they make it up? I'll let Justice William O. Douglas' words tell the story. He wrote the majority opinion in Griswold that the right was to be found in the penumbrums and emanations of other constitutional protections, such as the self-incrimination clause of the Fifth Amendment. If this wasn't such a serious matter, I would laugh out loud at just how hard Douglas had to work in order to find this previously undiscovered right of privacy. In case you're wondering, penundrums means a partial shadow. Like when you see an eclipse, it's like in the middle there, the regions between like the big shadow and the complete light. And emanations, of course, is just a form of the word emanating, which means to come forth like light emanating from a lamp. So they found this right of privacy in the penundrums and emanations. This is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Now you know why I said what I said in episode 16 about the Supreme Court. These justices are literally making shit up as they go along, and it gets applied carte blanche to the rest of us. Regardless how you feel about this newfound right of privacy, how can the court reconcile the rather obvious constitutional protections in things like marriage, sex, contraception, family relationships, child-rearing, etc., with abortion. Protecting an innocent life is not the equivalent of restricting someone's personal choice to use birth control. You would think it is reasonable to expect the esteemed justices of the Supreme Court to know the history of the document in which they swore an oath to uphold and protect. The whole idea of privacy, if you want to paint this in broad strokes, was unreasonable search and seizures and quartering of soldiers. In other words, the state of Connecticut can pass all kinds of ridiculous laws about personal behavior, but they do not have the constitutional right to break down your door to search. So in my opinion, the whole right to privacy is unnecessary from the federal court. The states can do what they want because they can more easily be overturned in the next election. What I'm going to cover next is on page 41 of the 66-page opinion. What it reveals about the court is shocking. It exposes the preposterous and frankly evil nature of the pro-abortion debate. It starts out with this quote, This right of privacy, whether it be founded in the 14th Amendment's concept of personal liberty and restrictions upon state action, as we feel it is, or, as the district court determined in the 9th Amendment's reservation of rights to the people, is broad enough to encompass a woman's decision whether or not to terminate her pregnancy. Three points need to be made about that paragraph. Number one, I'm always on guard when I hear liberals use the word feel. You know, I feel like a woman should have the right to kill their babies. Or I feel like men who identify as a woman should be able to go in the girl's bathroom. But to read a liberal Supreme Court justice like Blackman slip up and allow the word to appear in his opinion is quite remarkable. We feel like the 14th Amendment argument is good enough to make killing babies a constitutional right. Like I said, if this wasn't such a serious topic, I would laugh. Secondly, the 14th Amendment was a Civil War Amendment, along with the 13th, which abolished slavery, and the 15th, which gave blacks the rights to vote. Section 1 of the 14th Amendment contains the relevant language. It states, 
all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. If you read through the writings and speeches of proponents of the 14th Amendment, you can see clearly how their intention was to embody the Civil Rights Act of 1866. Equal protection simply means that laws must be enforced the same against whites as blacks. If whites were guaranteed a right, then so were blacks. Things like the right to enter into contracts or own property or inherit property or, or travel freely and access to courts. The right to due process in a nutshell guaranteed procedural fairness for all people. Many in Congress feared that future Congresses might overturn the Civil Rights Act. What Congress giveth, Congress may take away, so they opted for a constitutional amendment because it would be so difficult to repeal it. The 14th Amendment was a result of those efforts. Can you find anything about abortion in that paragraph? Of course not. Honestly, when you look at the reason for the 14th Amendment and read the arguments made by its authors, it really should be a dead amendment, like prohibition. It's no longer relevant in modern America, especially with all the anti-discrimination laws on the books. Author Brian Vanyo put it this way, quote, To the court that endured the Civil War and Reconstruction, it was perfectly clear that the 14th Amendment did not extend the application of the Bill of Rights beyond the federal government, end quote. It's unfortunate that the amendment was not more clearly written because it has opened up a can of worms that being the Supreme Court's applying of the Bill of Rights to state laws or applying the Due Process Clause to all sorts of activities outside its rightful legal place. It only applies to the federal government. In his concurring opinion in Roe, Justice Stewart quotes Justice Harlan's dissenting opinion in Poe v. Ullman in 1961, quote, The full scope of the liberty guaranteed by the Due Process Clause cannot be found or limited by the precise terms of the specific guarantees elsewhere provided in the Constitution. This liberty is not a series of isolated points pricked out in terms of the taking of property, the freedom of press, speech, and religion to keep and bear arms, the freedom from unreasonable searches and seizures, and so on. It's a rational continuum, which, broadly speaking, includes a freedom from all substantial, arbitrary impositions and purposeless restraints." End quote. Man, that's a bunch of hogwash bullshit. Did you catch that intense constitutional analysis? Rational continuum. I mean, seriously, folks. If Stuart or Harlan were intellectually honest, the quote would be something like this. It's a rational continuum that allows activist judges like myself to come along and interpret at some point in the future in order to justify a policy position that I maintain. End quote. I mean, really. The more I study the Supreme Court, the more of a joke the so-called high court shows itself to be. Nine people dictating to hundreds of millions is not constitutional. Over time, the court incorporated 4th, 5th, 6th, and 8th Amendment prohibitions into the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. In addition to abortion, they used this incorporation to declare a right to homosexual sodomy, restrict religious displays, welfare restrictions, school prayer, and death penalty cases, among many others. But the 14th Amendment had nothing to do with the states. It only restricted the federal government. Therefore, as Brian Fanyo said, the Supreme Court, quote, stole from the people their natural and constitutional authority to set the boundaries of such rights in their state governments, end quote. 
To tie a bow on this ridiculous reliance on the 14th Amendment in this case, I will let Justice Rehnquist do the talking from his dissenting opinion in Roth. Quote, the court necessarily has had to find within the scope of the 14th Amendment a right that was apparently completely unknown to the drafters of the amendment. As early as 1821, the first state law dealing directly with abortion was enacted by the Connecticut legislature. By the time the adoption of the 14th Amendment in 1868, let me just explain, that's 40 years before the ratification of the 14th Amendment that these abortion laws came into place. I'm sorry, back to Rehnquist. There were at least 36 laws enacted by states or territorial legislations limiting abortion. So let me just read that in context. By the time the adoption of the 14th Amendment in 1868, there were at least 36 laws enacted by states or territorial legislators limiting abortion. To continue, while many states have amended or updated their laws, 21 of the laws on the books in 1868 remain in effect today. Indeed, the Texas statute struck down today was, as the majority notes, first enacted in 1857 and has remained substantially unchanged at the present time. There apparently was no question regarding the validity of this provision or any other statutes when the 14th Amendment was adopted. The only conclusion possible from this history is that the drafters did not intend to have the 14th Amendment withdraw from the states the power to legislate with respect to this matter, end quote. In other words, this stuff had been going on long before the 14th Amendment was drafted, and the 14th Amendment has nothing to do with abortion and has nothing to do with applying due process to a bunch of other stuff. Okay, finally, what's up with this Ninth Amendment thing? The Ninth Amendment serves a very simple but crucial purpose. As Michael Meharry from the Tenth Amendment Center says, quote, it expands the limits on the federal government. It makes the implied limits on the federal authority explicit. Together, the Ninth and Tenth Amendments affirm what was already understood and implicit in the Constitution. The federal government may only exercise the powers that were expressly delegated to it. The Ninth Amendment was the response to concerns that listing certain rights in the Bill of Rights would imply the federal government had the power to violate other rights that weren't listed. End quote. So, as I explained in episode 37, the truth about the Bill of Rights, the Ninth Amendment was essentially a safety net clause, basically saying that people have other rights besides those listed. What we're about to go through will explain a lot about why pro-abortionists seem so rabid when it comes to their sacrament. It all started with Roe v. Wade. Here are a list of detrimental impacts upon the pregnant woman by denying her the choice to end the life of an innocent baby. Number one, specific and direct harm, medically diagnosable even in early pregnancy, may be involved. Is this a real thing? I mean, do pro-lifers advocate for the pregnant woman to risk her life in order to have the child? I mean, risk to the mother's life has always been a reasonable compromise. Number two, maternity or additional offspring may force upon a woman a distressful life and future. Yeah, right. Um, there are consequences to your actions. If you have unprotected sex, you may get pregnant. Getting pregnant should lead to the birth of a live baby and 18 to 20 years of child rearing. As a father of three, I can attest that raising children is certainly stressful, but distressful? So Harry, in your omnipotent position as one of nine people in the country of hundreds of millions, is it your opinion that in order to avoid a future filled with distress, 
pregnant women are better off killing the innocent baby in their womb? Hell, that sounds like Barack Obama. Remember, I don't want my daughters punished with a baby. Do you see how sick this is? Number three, psychological harm may be imminent. Number four, mental and physical health may be taxed by child care. Number five, there is also the distress for all concerned associated with an unwanted child. Number six, the problem of bringing a child into a family already unable, psychologically or otherwise, to care for it. Have you ever heard of adoption? And finally, to put an end to one of the sickest paragraphs in Supreme Court history, Blackman says, quote, In other cases, as in this one, the additional difficulties and stigma of unwed motherhood may be involved. Honestly, folks, this line of reasoning is just short of the language used in the Dred Scott opinion. One declared that blacks were not people worthy of protection, and the other declared babies in the womb are not people worthy of protection. So, back to my imagined dialogue with Harry. So let me get this straight. Your opinion basically argues that the best alternative for pregnant women faced with the perceived future distress, or psychological harm, or mental or physical exertion of childcare, with the limited ability to raise a child from an unplanned pregnancy in a family that is less than ideal and or the possibility of an unwed mother being subjected to a societal stigma, in your deprived, perverted mind, the best alternative is to create a new constitutional right to kill innocent life in the womb? That will solve all the problems, hey Harry? There is a thing called adoption, Harry. Have you ever gone to a Christian or Jewish church and been exposed to the concept that we are all made in God's image and worthy of respect and protection? Following that depraved paragraph, one of Harry's clerks must have knocked on the door and suggested that he concede some ground to the folks who actually value life. Let this next sentence serve as a preview of what we are going to cover in the next episode. Blackman wrote, The appellant argues that the woman's right is absolute and that she is entitled to terminate her pregnancy at whatever time, in whatever way, and for whatever reason she alone chooses. With this, we do not agree. I apologize for another interruption, but the more I read this decision, the more pissed off I get. And let me get this straight. Harry does not agree that abortion is okay any time, for any reason, or any place. Well, well, I wonder why. Well, the only possible response is because there is something wrong with the practice of abortion. What might that be, Harry? And why did you concoct a right to an abortion out of thin air if there was something wrong with its practice? In this episode, I try to introduce you to the Roe v. Wade opinion, walk you through their reasoning, the right of privacy, the Ninth and Fourteenth Amendments, and expose you not only to the sick and twisted justifications used to explain why killing innocent babies in the womb is okay, but I wanted to expose you to the illogic used by the majority to arrive at their predetermined destination of unconstitutionally declaring abortions legal throughout the country. In the next episode, we're going to walk through the rest of the opinion and expose you to some of the things that will likely surprise you as they did me. Please join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast.